Now, if you receive the, if, if you receive the BP blast this week, um, you're wondering, I, I should probably say, no, I don't know really that much about winemaking. If you don't receive the BP blast, you're realizing now what you miss by not receiving the BP blast. But I, I, I entitled my uh, little spot in the BP Blast this week, Wine Bottles Bursting and Root Beer Bombs. Doesn't that sound fun? Yes. Well, when I was a kid, my mom actually experimented a little bit. One, for a while, she made, she, made, she, she made our own root beer. For a while, she tried this thing called rose petal wine. I don't know if that's any good. I don't know why you'd make wine out of rose petals in the first place, but I understand some people do. Um, as far as I know about wine, that's where they get a rosé. I have no idea, you see? Okay. But, but mom did, mom did uh, uh, make the point that they had, she had these vents that she would put on top of the bottles that while it was fermenting, of the, in these larger bottles that she would use, it had to have a vent on it because if you didn't have a vent and the yeast is in there and the sugars are in there, that the fermentation produces carbon dioxide that will build up pressure. Now, if you just have it open to the air so you release the pressure, well, apparently bacteria gets in there and it'll spoil the whole lot. So you have a vent that will let the pressure out without letting any other oxygen in. And, uh, but if you don't have a vent... Or perhaps if you thought the fermentation was finished and you then corked the bottles and you stored it away, but fermentation is continuing, you're going to have a problem depending on what you've used to store it in. You might end up with sparkling wine, carbon dioxide in the wine, or you might end up with an explosion. Uh, if you're lucky, it'll blow the corks out and you'll spew wine over wherever you were... You were um, storing it. If you're not so fortunate, then you might blow up the bottle and glass shards, sticky glass shards with the remnants of your wine will be everywhere. I was reading uh, one person's story, a similar, people, people shared the stories about this with their experiments in, in wine bottling and now why they just go to the store instead. Uh, others trying to make root beer and somebody talked about storing the root beer perhaps a little too close to the furnace and maybe it was too warm. They're not sure why, but it exploded. The root beer exploded similarly to the wine would in, the, in that process and it exploded um, just a day or two before their um, walk through, final walk-through inspection as they were selling their house. <laughs> Apparently, it's bad for a, a, a final walk-through if you have uh, glass embedded in the basement ceiling and root beer sprayed everywhere. That's what they, they indicated. But the problem, I, I tell you all of that to tell you this. Although I don't know a whole lot about wine making, apparently Jesus did. Because there was a time where when he, the Pharisees were criticizing his disciples. And one thing Jesus is good at is when, when, when you go after his own, he, he, he protects them, he defends them, he stands for them. And, and they were criticizing his disciples. Why don't your disciples fast like the disciples of the Pharisees do? And, and Jesus says, well, well, you're missing the point. You don't realize it, but the game has changed. 
They, they are not fasting because this is the time of the Messiah. You could fast because of the sins of the nation and our need for deliverance. You could fast in longing and prayer for the Messiah to come. But when the Messiah is here in your midst, that is not a time for fasting. That is a time for feasting. This is a time for party and celebration. You don't realize that the game has changed. We're not playing football we're playing football. He says, you don't put, and here's, here's, the, here's the winemaking, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because the, the, the uh, wine, when it ferments, it's going to need to expand. And they didn't, in the first century, use vents. They would seal it closed in a wineskin, but a new wineskin, the new leather, had the ability to stretch. And as the wine, as pressure built up, the, the skin could stretch or other type of things that was made out of that I will not go into. But the, um, if you used a, something that was already stretched, a wine skin that was already stretched from previous winemaking, it's kind of like you've blowed up the balloon and now you're going to blow it up again. This, with the original air, well, well, it's already been expanded now, let's say. A balloon doesn't work for that, sorry, a bad analogy. But, but the, new, the, the old wineskin that's been used, been stretched, now you put new wine, fill it up again, seal it off, and as that expansion occurs again, as pressure builds up again, the skin can't stretch again. And so instead, it will burst, Jesus says. And you will lose not only the wineskin, but the new wine. And so Jesus says, new wine must be put in new wineskins. And that's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 3. Well, it's been going on for a while, but Paul is being particularly clear about it. In fact, Ephesians chapter 3 is unique in the New Testament as one place where, where Paul gets a little more specific about this difference that we're no longer playing football, we're now going to play football. Okay, And if you don't realize, if you don't perceive the change that has occurred, you will have the wrong expectations about what should happen. And then, let's say, the wrong things happen in life, things you didn't expect happen in life, and you, you now will have some anger, frustration, or resentment against God about why is this happening, this is not the kind of thing that should happen. We get a glimpse of that here in Ephesians chapter 3 as Paul begins. And let's, let's just jump in. We'll, we'll start in Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 1. I'll read a couple verses at a time. We'll, we'll talk about what's going on there. But there's two big hunks, two big pieces. First of all, God has done a new thing in this thing called church. That Paul's going to talk about the, the new difference concerning the church. Think about change from football to football. There's a different a, a, a different thing going on now. And in the midst of that then, God will work in new ways. In this new thing called church, God will work in new ways beyond our current expectations or beyond our previous expectations. There's a new thing called church, and so then Paul's going to talk about his ministry within the church that functions by a new paradigm. And your serving in the church also then will function by a new paradigm. So that's where we're going. First of all, God has done a new thing in this thing called church. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now Paul stops there. Paul breaks the sentence there that he doesn't complete, a thought he doesn't complete all the way to verse 13. And if you skip down to verse 13 and, and pick it up, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. It is actually my sufferings are for your glory. So he said, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace so that you don't lose heart. Paul is saying this, if you understand my calling in this new thing called church, don't despair then for my troubles. Don't be discouraged by the troubles that I'm experiencing. If you understand this new calling in this thing called church. So there's a tone being set. We'll pick that up in verse 3. There's something new going on. Look at verse 3. How? What do you mean? What is this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you? Verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as i written previously. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery, something which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there's a mystery. Now what, is, what kind of mystery is it? It is not a mystery where you wonder, was it Colonel Mustard in the billiard room with the wrench? It's not that kind of mystery. The Agatha Christie doesn't show up here anyway, okay? There's no Orient Express. It's not that kind of mystery. It's not something that we need to follow the clues and figure out. And if we follow the clues well, we could figure out. A mystery, as the the word mysterion is used in the New Testament, is a mystery that cannot be figured out unless God reveals it. You actually see that explanation in how Paul uses it. Verse 5, that mystery which has not been made known in other generations, as it now has been revealed, or Paul says in the Colossians parallel, but has now been revealed. That as there's kind of like where Peter says in, in the day of Pentecost, these men are not drunk as you suppose. The as does not mean they're a little drunk. They're just not as drunk as you thought. No, they're not drunk at all as you're thinking they are. They are rather filled by the Spirit. And so it was not made known at all in previous generations, but it has now been made known. That's a mystery. You know where else, other than the, these New Testament talking about new things revealed about the church? that we couldn't have known before otherwise, unless God's Spirit revealed them through people. You know where else that word is used in the Old Testament? It shows up in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember Daniel chapter 2? The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream, and it's a weird dream, but he's used to having weird dreams apparently. And, and he has a, a whole staff of people that went to dream school. And they know how to interpret dreams. They have PhDs in dreams from the University of Babylon. They've got this handled. But they cannot figure out this dream. They don't know what it means. And so enter Daniel and his three friends. And there, this is going to be the answer, right? Well, no. Daniel and his three friends could not either figure out the dream. But they have a God who is a revealer of mysteries. And Daniel prays, and God reveals to Daniel the mystery. 
A mystery, mysterion, is something that cannot be known unless God reveals it. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 3 is there's something new going on about the church that was not known in the Old Testament. God is doing something new. God is doing something different. That'll be important in just a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll reveal why. But so, so Isaiah could not have dug into his prophecies and figured this out. Moses knew nothing about this. In fact, the early church is having a hard time figuring out what has changed from our understanding under Israel to our understanding now in, after Pentecost in this church age. I, I, I grew up in faith um, under, a, under a theological framework that was called, or, or, a, or a, rather I should say a Bible interpretation uh, framework that was called dispensationalism. Now, um, dispensationalism basically means that in different eras of time that God has a, a specific way or framework by which he is administrating his relationship with people. It's not a different means of salvation at different times. People are not saved differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. They are saved by faith in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. David was justified by faith, not by works. So Old Testament, New Testament, that doesn't change. But God is revealing himself and administrating, carrying out that relationship in different ways. Um, uh, so that, that in theological circles, that dispensationalists were different than Reformed people, for instance. But I, I just like to tell my Reformed friends that really you're a dispensationalist too. In fact, everybody who doesn't, take, who, who doesn't bring with them a lamb to church on Saturday instead of Sunday is, in fact, a dispensationalist. You're realizing that there's a difference, there's a change in what, and how God is, is working his relationship with us. And so there's some changes, there's some difference, but there's some dramatic difference between Israel Old Testament and the church. And so what God has revealed, not known in the Old Testament, there's something about the church that is distinct from Israel's previous calling as a people and the advantages that were given to them by God. This mystery is described, defined in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That might sound familiar to you because we just talked about that last week at the second half of chapter 2. That's why Paul says back there in verse 3, this mystery which I have written briefly about. He hadn't plumbed the depths of all that this means, but he talked about those differences that God has taken Israel and non-Jewish people and he has brought them together, not made both of them now part of Israel or not made both of them part of not Israel, but he has taken out of those two people which were at odds with each other and he's made them into a new humanity. God has made something new. We call it the church. We call it the body of Christ. And in this new thing, he has made a peace between peoples that were, had hostility against each other. We talked about that. And he's made peace with us together with himself through Jesus. So then, God has made something new, this body of Christ. And this body of Christ, this thing called church, as an assembly, not a building... This thing called church that God is building, I love the fact that we're building a building because God is building a temple. God is building a body. God is building up a people 
through, through whom he lives out relationship with us and through whom he does his work in the world. So God is building a church. Yeah, we think about building a church, building, but God is building his church. That's why I'm loving the, the timing of this study in Ephesians. But if we, in this new that God is doing, if we think we're playing football, when we're supposed to be playing football, there's going to be some confusion, right? Let me illustrate. Old Testament. Uh, people understood their relationship with God in relation to the law. God said, in fact, if you walk in my ways, if you have done what I have said, if you keep this covenant, you will enjoy the blessings of this land. If you do not walk in my covenant, you will not enjoy the blessings of this land. In fact, you take it far enough and I'll take you out of the land for a while. The land is going to get its Sabbath rest whether you're in it or not. And that's what he ends up doing in the captivity. So Israel has a mindset. When we follow God and do what God has said, we're going to experience God's blessing. The rains are going to come, the early rains and the later rains. The, the, um, our enemies are not going to have success over us. In fact, they're going to flee before us, David and Goliath. The, the, when we do not obey God and we do not walk in his ways, that's when we're going to experience troubles. God's blessing will be withheld. He will withhold the rains. Think of Elijah and three years of drought and the accompanying famine. Think of, think of the captivity. When they persist in their idolatry, God says, okay, you want idols? I'll give you idols. Babylon, they got plenty of them. Go over there to Babylon. Get your fill of them. And Israel's never had a problem with idolatry, idolatry since, at least in that sense of the word. And so they, they experience this. If we do this, we're going to experience blessing. If we, if we don't follow God's rules, we're going to experience troubles instead. And there's a paradigm, there's a framework that we read that in the Old Testament and we easily bring it into the New Testament. We easily bring that in a sense, do this and you shall live. We bring that framework with us into an age of, of God's gracious dealings in the church where it doesn't fit anymore. All of that cursing has been paid for in Jesus that we live in a new in a new. Uh, uh, era of God's overflowing, where he lavishes his grace upon us, and things are different. Things are different in terms of the basis of our blessing. It doesn't come out of my obedience. It comes out of Christ's obedience for me. And yet, there's been a whole new reversal in terms of hardship and suffering and what seems like a withholding of blessing. That as we follow Jesus, we, as Paul demonstrates, we can at times experience trouble and hardship. And we might bear those troubles. We might be wrongly accused. We might be mistreated. And we say, God, why are you allowing this? I have been walking in your ways. I've been walking with you. And yet you're not bringing me blessing. You're allowing troubles to come instead. God, you're not being fair. Because I'm living over here in an Old Testament paradigm. I'm living over here in a paradigm that says, if I do this, then good things are going to happen for me. Well, that works in, for Joel Olstein in Houston. But it doesn't work in God's church. 
See, the whole prosperity thing is built somehow around that, and yet that is not, that is not what God is doing. In fact, often God's servants endure hardship and suffering. Why? Because what Paul described, he said, that I would, he said, I'm willing to suffer even to the point of death that I might know him who suffered for me. If I follow Jesus and Jesus is going the way of the cross, then what should my expectation be? That there might well be suffering. There might well be hardship. And it might be unjust and it might be hard to bear. And it might be because of somebody else's sin instead of mine. And there I experience something of Jesus and who he was for me. I taste something of his love for me when I'm the one who's receiving hardship and trouble even at somebody else's fault. Or maybe just because of the general weakness of humanity. And we experience that in life. And bad stuff comes and bad news comes along to us. And, and the weakness of our bodies catch up with us and aches and pains and troubles and groanings. And yet, in that weakness of humanity, we taste something of what Jesus entered into for us in the incarnation. You see, Jesus didn't enter into a paradigm of, I will do good so that blessing will come. Jesus did good. And yet he took upon himself the very worst for us. And then he encouraged us to follow him. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Willingly endure hardship for the sake of others for their blessing. And that's how Paul then in this new age of life with Christ, where even in hardship and suffering, there is where we know him in this new era then. We have an opportunity to join in his sufferings, knowing him more fully, and in hardship or sacrifice, even giving what we have for the benefit, let's say in a building to the next generation, that we'll endure hardship for the sake of others, as Paul puts it here into the Ephesians, for their glory. That we will use what we have in this life, we'll, we'll use it and, and give it away for the sake of inviting others into eternal dwelling places. That's what's going on. And so, as he's described, this new thing called church and this new identity that even the earliest church, in, in Acts chapter 10, Peter's wrestling with this. He's going to be invited to a Gentile's house and, 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 and good Jews don't eat with Gentiles at that time. And so God, has, he has this vision of a tablecloth with all kinds of unclean foods three times coming down. And, he, and he's told, kill her, or, or rather, Peter, rise and eat. Uh, maybe he was supposed to kill at first. That's why I called him killer instead of Peter. But, but three times God says this. And Peter says, no, I've never eaten that which is unclean. And, and the Lord says to him, do not call unclean what I have called clean, what I have made clean. Things are changing, and it's, it's hard for Peter to wrap his head around it. In Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15, there's a, there's a, there's a section of the church that's having hard trouble with these, these non-Jewish people now believing, well, shouldn't they be, be circumcised? Shouldn't they be following all the rules of the law? Shouldn't they be, be becoming Jewish in order to follow and worship our God? And it takes them a while to figure out that no, and the church concludes, no, that God is doing something new. And a new perception leads to new expectations. 
God has done a new thing in this thing called church, and thus God is working in new ways beyond old expectations. We are not playing football. We are playing football. You know, and, and imagine, imagine if that old European British football model, imagine if they could pick up the ball and throw it to somebody running downfield. You'd finally have some, some, some points scored in soccer, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful? I digress. But God is doing something new and better. <laughs> I couldn't resist. David was sitting right there. So now Paul is, Paul is describing then differences in ministry. And let's run through that from verse 7. Your perspective of how God might use you. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. The first question, well, who is able? Who is able to be used by God for what God is doing in the church? Who is able? Where God calls you, where God calls you to serve, he enables us to serve by his spirit. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It wasn't according to his past training as a Pharisee. In fact, Paul says, I count that as rubbish or dung that I may gain Christ. And no longer be found in myself, but in him. Paul's enabling for ministry comes from God, not from himself. I think of uh, in terms of who is able here. In fact, God often uses the weak to confound the strong. You say, well, I don't, I don't know enough to be able to share the Bible with others. Does God not use the foolish to confound the wise? I think of Moses. And Moses was looking for reasons why God sends somebody else. Send anybody else. That's my brother over there. He's not doing anything. What about Aaron? Take Aaron. He says, God, you can't use me. I mean, I have a stammer. I don't speak well in public. I can identify with Moses because I had a stammer. All the way um, through my elementary, uh, junior high, which is a terrible place to have a stammer, by the way. High school, I learned to just be quiet, don't say anything. As a young adult, I could not speak in, in, in public. I know, look what God has done. Now I can't shut up in public. I know, it's a problem. We, we're working on it. <laughs> But don't, don't call your fearful hesitancy about what God might do, don't call your fearful hesitancy God's inability. Okay? God made me a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, Paul says, this grace was given. This answers the question, well, who is worthy? Who is worthy for this? Well, not me. <laughs> Certainly not you. But being used by God is not based on our worthiness in ourselves. Now we can do things that will disqualify ourselves from certain aspects of ministry. But that doesn't mean God is done with you and you are put on the shelf either. In fact, sometimes you're failing, you're falling in repentance and in God's grace and experiencing God's grace in the midst of sin, that might prepare you and sensitize you and equip you for others who might fall, could fall, or do fall into that same trap. 
And you would be just the one whom God would use. Or the troubles you've experienced in life, the hurt you've experienced in life. God says that we are, that, that he is the God of all, all mercy and the God of all comfort who comforts us so that we might comfort others in his mercy. And in the troubles that you've had and the need of his grace, well, there's grief share, isn't it? Having experienced God's comfort, now being able to share that with others, that they would find comfort, not in a program, but in God's mercy and his comfort, that this ministry is structured to guide towards. And God equips people, and sometimes it hurts how God equips us and shapes us for what he intends to do. But in the midst of it hurting, look to Jesus. He who endured hurt, rejection, humiliation, sin, death for us. He endured the cross, despising its shame, that he might sit down at the right hand of God and that he might bring many with him to glory. And maybe that's going to, what God's going to do in the midst of your troubles as well. You may think that you've been disqualified, that God couldn't use you. Don't confuse consequences with limitations of what God may very well do. You may think you don't have the ability, but will you, are you willing? It's more about willing than ability, really. Are you willing to do what God calls you to do? To borrow Brandy's words earlier, how uh, somewhere between a poke, a nudge, and a kick. What will it take? But are you willing to follow his leading and his call? Paul says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this poses the question, well, to whom will we go? To whom will we go? Who will I minister to? And ministry is often to those who seem like, least likely to believe. The focus is not on how promising a person might be but on God's promise in Jesus. You don't know what God will do. Who have you given up on? Be ready to tell them again. Be ready to share with them again. I came, came across a survey just recently. In fact, it was just a couple of days ago. This is a survey, survey by Lifeway Research Group. And they were, they, were, they were doing a survey to discover how open are Americans in general, not church people, but Americans in general, how open are they to talking about things of faith, about another person's faith. And they found that 60% were open or very open to having a conversation about faith with a friend. Two-thirds of people are open or very open to having a conversation about faith. And when, when uh, that was changed from friend to a stranger, still, even with a stranger, 51% were still open to having a conversation. 40% of those, and this is especially true among the male 1834, so guys, you're going to have to go after them, because 40% say they wouldn't think about faith on their own if a friend or family member didn't bring it up. So what does that tell you? Bring it up. And if you do bring it up, they will not, most of the time, chase you away. And if they chase you away, no problem, suffering for Jesus. When asked if they would want to hear why someone thinks their faith helps with a core human need, 69% of Americans said, yes, 
I'd want to hear from someone why they think their faith helps them in the midst of a need. When meeting someone new, also 69% said that they are open or very open to hearing their life story if it includes faith. So people are, there's a lot that people don't know today and yet that they are willing to hear. There's an open, there's a, there's a multifacetedness about America today that does provide a new kind of opening for the gospel. You cannot assume what people already know, but please do not assume that they don't want to hear it from you. I can assure you they would rather hear it from you than me because you have relationship with them. So be, be willing to, to, to step into that relationship for sharing the gospel with others. In verse 9, then to bring the light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery? Hidden for ages in God who created all things. The church is not God's plan B. He's been moving this direction all along, and here we are, so that through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You might be thinking, yeah, but I'm small potatoes, really. What could I do? What difference could I make? Well, God says he will use you to instruct angels. God says he will use you in his church to make his ways known, not merely to the nations on earth, but to principalities and powers, to rulers in the heavenlies. And that means angels, and that also means demonic powers. That puts a whole new turn on spiritual warfare, doesn't it? We often think of spiritual warfare in terms of the power of demonic forces and what are they going to do, and we need to be on guard against them. But what if God is using you to show his glory in their face? That's a whole different turn on it. And not in me, not in you, but in Christ. That's what he is doing. According to his eternal purposes, realized in Christ Jesus, in whom then we can have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So, Paul says in verse 13, I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. Don't lose heart in what I'm suffering for you. This is for your glory. Paul says, I am delighted to pour out my life in the Christ kind of afflictions which are still needed for the sake of his church. Paul says, I am very willing to, to have trouble, cost, hardship, sacrifice in my life for the purpose of inviting others into heavenly dwelling places. For the purpose of others knowing Christ and being raised, being raised in him to newness of life. To having perhaps a whole family tree changed because somebody believed. And it followed in their family. In God's great reversal, he has made us more than we comprehend in his church. And he is now doing through us more than we would expect. And so we need to know something about the, the new wine in the new wineskins. Because we're not playing church in, in the old paradigm of Israel with a priesthood and then the other people. And places in a temple getting closer to God that only some people are allowed and the others must watch from outside. No, he has made us a kingdom, a nation, a people and kingdom of priests unto God. You have access. You have connections. 
You are indwelt as a believer in Jesus with the spirit of the living God. And he fully intends you to use you to show something of Jesus to people around you. And apparently, at least some of them, maybe the majority of them, are willing to hear and won't chase you away. So who will we invite to know something about Jesus and his death and resurrection? Who will we invite to know something about our hope in him for new life now and in the future? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us then. Change our, change our, our perception, Father, of, of who we are, of, of what is this thing you have made in the church, of what it is that you call us to, and even in the midst of hardship and suffering, that there we would know something more about Jesus our Savior and his love for us. Father, help us to understand something about this grand reversal where, where tragedies have become triumph, where, where loss has become gain, where suffering is turned to glory. Father, let us trust you for that so that we would have courage that even after we maybe have endured hardship or trouble or suffering for a little while, that we would know your own grounding and settling and assuring us. And Father, that you would then give us the courage and understanding what it is that you've called us to, what the expectations are by the power of your Spirit, you, you would then give us the courage, Lord, to step into that for the sake of and for the glory for people around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.